they just do things that are not the way that they used to do it. Like I've cried at work multiple times in workshops that have meaning, deep, deep meaning. Seeing that and realizing we're at work right now, <laughs> this is actually happening. Like those kind of things, like just drive me to make sure that everybody can feel that. So that's that's what I'm I'm hell bent on doing that at work. That was Todd, a veteran of 19 years at Microsoft, talking about how changes in the culture have allowed him to become a champion for other employees who, like him, live with ADD. Todd and his family identified his ADD fairly young in life, and for a while, a regimen of medication helped him be a four-point student. But in seventh grade, a friend introduced him to marijuana. Todd decided he'd found a different way to manage ADD, quit his medications, and started a roller coaster that didn't fully settle down until he found the power of community through CrossFit. In this episode of Silent Superheroes, we'll talk about whether we live our lives again without a mental illness, how Microsoft has become more mental illness friendly under new CEO Satya Nadella, and finally, why Todd arrived to record this episode bearing a plant. Remember. Todd and I are just two people talking about our personal experience living with and managing mental illness. If you're considering making a change to your treatment plan, please consult with a trained medical professional. My name's James Pratt. I'm the host of Silent Superheroes, and I'm really glad that you're here. Welcome to the Silent Superheroes Podcast, a series of frank conversations about mental health at work. All right, welcome to Silent Superheroes. I'm here with today's guest, Todd. Todd, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So, Todd, why didn't you tell us a little bit about what we're going to talk about today? I don't know, I guess attention deficit is kind of the root of my cause, and then um, neurodiversity as a whole, how it snaps into the workplace and um, what we can do to help empower each other, I guess. Maybe before we go into the attention deficit, um, this word neurodiversity comes up, and I don't know it's necessarily a new word, but I think it's got more popular lately. What does neurodiversity mean to you? It's kind of new to me too, so it's interesting you said that. Um, to me, it encompasses kind of all of the different quirks that people have, and it's kind of it's kind of a label, really. It's kind of what it is. Like it kind of just an umbrella that encompasses all of the different facets of people um, who think that maybe they have something wrong with them and nobody really pays attention to it. So it's kind of an organization, I guess. So you mentioned attention deficit disorder. Talk to us a little bit about what does attention deficit disorder mean to you? It means uh, mental chaos <laughs> to me. <laughs> um, I've been dealing with it for a very long time. So um, I've come through a lot of different portals, I guess, kind of the way I look at it. It definitely has a superpower for the for the industry I'm in, so it's kind of um, it can be dangerous in that way, and it um, yeah it means confusion to me really. Yeah. Okay, interesting. Yeah. Talk a little bit more about that experience of confusion. Um, so from an early age, I guess so. I've, I was diagnosed when I was eight. My understanding it was kind of on the forefront of of doctors are now looking for a reason that you know your child acts crazy. So my parents, you know, God bless them, they didn't know what they were doing, so they figured out something was off, and so. That's kind of uh, where it started for me, but then they started forcing me all these drugs, right? So Ritalin was pretty bad, and then and then kind of come, you know, it's eight years old, so trying to deal with that at the same time, you're just trying to learn things and not comprehending things. Um, I think those two things kind of melted together into forming my identity at that point in time. So to me, for the probably the first two thirds of my life, it was it was around dysfunction and why am I not acting the way I should be acting? So you were put on Ritalin yep. when you were eight, eight. 
but evidently that didn't magically cure you or make life any easier. So talk about that. Yeah, I can't speak for my parents. I don't know what exactly they were looking for. Probably some kind of magic bullet, right? But for me, you know, it just made things actually worse. I mean, it calmed me down in a way that I could, if you want to look at it that way, it kind of zombified me. But I could do better scholastically, but everything else would pay the price on the other side. So you would know when you're coming off it, and then suddenly it's like a rocket ship. What were the more problematic behaviors outside of outside of the schoolwork? I was just always wild. So I'm the youngest of three. I have two older sisters. I think I was just not like them. So it was like, what the hell's wrong with this guy? So I don't know, just high energy, just a lot of, you know, fidgety. I'm not so much anymore, but um, yeah, like I get hyper-focused on things. I would take things apart, you know, people are like, what is, what's going on with that guy? So I think that was pretty much it. For some reason, I'm just imagining like a bedroom, like strewn with like, you know, half taken apart, like radios yeah, and toys for sure. and stuff with like trucks, that. I'd figure out how to take them apart. Like you just, all the toys. Yeah, for sure. I, I'm almost thinking of, uh, do you know the, the movie Toy Story? Yeah. Um, I forget the kid who lived next doors. Yeah, right. <laughs> like that, well, right? Not so much in the torturous actions, but... <laughs> Yeah, oh, interesting. Never thought of that. Yeah. Before. So, and it's interesting because my dad, he like he would buy me like erector sets and like construct like all these cool things, you know. That would they were I shouldn't say my dad, but he was more mechanical. But they, I would just get caught up in building things for hour. Like that was so. Yeah, I mean, it was pretty cool. Walk us through kind of a little bit more of the the journey. So you know, high school, college. Yeah. So this is where it gets crazy. So. Um, we, we lived in California and my mother was a school teacher and my father was in the prison system, but not on the inside. Like he worked for the prison. So, um, <laughs> right. You have to make clarification. clarification right. Yeah. So people are like, well, okay, we're going to see where this is turning now. Uh, so we always moved. So we, we moved a couple of times with the prison system as he took different jobs. So I was raised here. So in Parkland, just South Tacoma. And then he worked on McNeil Island then. And then we moved to California. Lompoc is the prison there. And that's where I was diagnosed. So um, from there, it was, you know, therapists won't tell you it's normal, but it was a t- pretty typical life in my, you know, in my eyes. It was just, you know, go to school, whatever. And then we moved back here, kept going to, you know, different doctors for different reasons, same same focus. And then about seventh grade is when all hell broke loose for me. So I was pretty much a four-point student until seventh grade. I remember a friend of mine snuck a joint out of his mom's ashtray, brought it to school. And it was just like, oh, this is different. I don't need to do this anymore. And I had always been feeling like, you know, I have to make the walk of shame to, you know, the health room to take my medication midday because by that time it's dexedrine. So it's not the same dosages and everything like that. Once I realized that there was a different way to manage it, I a guess. Different path, yeah. yeah, absolutely. About seventh grade, eighth grade, I guess, I just went off medication. I was like, I'm not, I'm not taking that anymore. So you guys can keep paying for it, but I'm not going to keep taking it. So, so that was kind of the, the trigger maybe for this. Yep. It was wild west after that. And, and so there probably were some times that I would try to get back on it just for some reason. I don't know what it would be, but then it was like, I'm not doing that. I just became rebellious as hell. So seventh grade, I was four point student, eighth grade. I was always, I was getting suspended. Like it was a definite crash, right? From there, things worsened. So um, I only made it through 10th grade in credit. Uh, yeah, about 10th grade in credits at high school. And I fully ejected. So I would just do whatever I wanted, come to lunch, hang out with my friends. <laughs> it was pretty much a social hour. And then I would come back and my parents were thinking, you know, now what are we going to do? Like, this is becoming a big deal, right? So from there, they didn't really know what to do with me. And I, and I totally get it. Like, I wouldn't know what to do either. So um, they, when I was 16 or 17, they put me into foster care. So they were like, here, you're going to go to this foster home. Holy shit, you're just making things worse, right? Like this is not getting any better. So 
Um, I got out of that. I was very manipulative. So I was able to tell my way out of that thing, get back to, you know, some reason of semblancy that w- or normalcy that would keep me near the friends that I had, I had built at that time. Then I met a girl and then I moved to Florida when I was 18. So that was pretty much my, my youth, no college, nothing like that. I, I moved there for a year, came back after I decimated my entire financial life. And then um, I moved back from Florida and then I had, then I met a, another girl here and then I had a daughter. So when I had my daughter, um, obviously things change. <laughs> so that was a little bit interesting to become a parent almost, you know, overnight, like, Oh, I'm definitely not on the tracks. And now we're going to have a whole family that's probably not going to be on the tracks either. So, uh, we didn't work. I didn't get married, but we, I had a daughter. Then I met my wife, my current wife now, and she pretty much equalizes me completely. So, um, everything from that point on has been kind of equal it's, it's kind of balanced, I guess. Um, that was when I was 21 sometime about 10 years ago, I guess I decided that, um, through my focus at work, and the lack thereof, I, I decided maybe I should take another look at medication. And then, so that's where I started this road back to where I'm at now. So. That's awesome. You said your wife evens you out. So talk about that. How does that, how does that work for you? She's all of the things that I never learned, I guess. It's kind of the easiest way of looking at it. So um, I don't do checkbooks. She does all the work, right? <laughs> so those kind of ideas are are like are solid in the more spiritual way. Like I'll fly off the handle. She's just calm and steady. You know, like she's a very patient person. I'm not so much. So like in all of those kind of different um, emotional ways, I think we pretty much balance each other out. That's awesome. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, it is. For those 10 years between, it sounds like, so 21, 31, what was going on for you? Well, I had a daughter, so I knew I knew that I was going to have to focus on that monetarily, how to, how to make things float that way. I was always just looking for ways of stability. So I've had a million jobs, literally like every job you can think of. Fueled planes on the SeaTac runway, and I've been a garbage man in Minnesota. (laughs) Like I've done all kinds of crazy shit. But it's I've always been constantly looking for things that keep me keep me focused, or else I just go completely off the rails. So my life between twenty one and thirty one was in search of that, I guess, in search of stability in the in the ways of money, and and you know I was pretty shoot from the hip. So I, I knew I needed to calm down a little bit or I wasn't going to be a very good role model. So thankfully, as soon as I had a daughter, pretty much, we were just like, we should just keep having kids. So we had um, three more three more boys in succession, which were, which are all pretty close. So my daughter's 20, she'll be 23 tomorrow. And my youngest is 15. So we just, so that kind of kept the focus. Like we're going to keep busy doing this thing, right? So a prescription, if you have ADHD, is just have a large family, evidently. I mean, or just keep yourself really busy. (laughs) (laughs) And a patient wife, that'll do it. There's an echo of another story in Todd's, the good kid gone bad story. It starts with a slightly wild kid whose parents find him hard to deal with, so they argue a lot. The kid, smarter than many around them, pushes the faculty's buttons at school and gets expelled. Things come to a head at home and he moves out. Thrust into the world too early, he ends up living below his potential. Todd's journey was, to use his words, a wild ride and had all the hallmarks of that promising kid gone bad narrative. But Todd meeting his wife seems to be the point where the trajectory starts pointing decidedly up. She brought the structure and balance he needed to make the best of his natural talents. Having ADHD didn't define the path Todd would take. 
What matters was the structure and support he was able to or just stumbled into along the way. I think we all need to find the right support structures around us. For example, I suck at managing my calendar. In fact, it drains the life out of me. But a colleague was kind enough to take that on for me. In return, I do all the dangerous and risky thinking that would terrify her. It's finding the things that help balance us out and being courageous enough to ask for the help that truly allows us to thrive. Next, we'll hear how the wild kid ended up at one of the world's most recognizable technology companies and the different ways Todd has tried to manage ADHD. You now work at Microsoft. I do. So uh, garbage man and person who fuel planes at SeaTac to Microsoft sounds like a fascinating story. It's a pretty wild ride. Um, my dad got a, an Apple IIc when I was probably 11. And I was stuck on, like I was telling like, um, this is my jam, right? So where in the world is Carmen Sandiego? Like that was it. And so I would spend hours in front of this thing. And then my sister brought home a PC and I could get into, you know, DOS. And I was just like, what's going on under the covers here? So it was like an endless, an endless thing for me, really. Like, like the, the amount of things you could do to manipulate something else to do things for you was just fascinating to me. I had always been interested in that and I dove pretty deep when I was a kid. And then, you know, through my wild west, I was like, nah, well, computers, whatever. I, I know what they do and I can figure that out. After I came back from Minnesota, I landed a job at Volt and ran BVTs in a, in a lab for, um, and whatever application center 2000 is when that happened and for those who don't know what a bvt is yeah the basic testing i guess is the best way to put it <clears throat> so it was just execution so then i started learning scripting and coding and i was just like wow this is way better than the old school and pretty much it just took off from there so after um i think i was a vendor for two years um i got an interview loop there and but they were i mean it was kind of the team that i had been working with so it was, it was kind of stacked if you think about it that way and then I, they were like, we'd like to come work full time. So, and I still kind of have the, the imposter, the imposter syndrome, because there's a lot of smart people up there, but I will just outwork everybody. Like, I just get so focused on things that people are like, I can't believe you're still here. And I'm like, I will not stop until I solve this problem. So I think that's, that's been what, why I've been able to keep that, that role for so long. That's the superpower. It is. Absolutely. Right. Yep. That, that yep. hyper focus. Cause I think as I've learned more about ADHD through doing these podcasts, I continue to learn it's not about like I cannot focus at all. No, definitely. Right? Yeah. So I can hyper focus yeah. on something that like gets my attention. For sure. Um, I just can't necessarily choose where to put my attention, like in the example of the checkbook, right? Yeah. It's like you can balance a checkbook. Right. Right. It's just not I don't want to. That's the thing. <laughs> That's what it is. Like I don't find that interesting for yeah. sure. Yeah. Let's talk about managing your ADHD. You've tried uh, medication, yeah. you've tried running. You know, I note that now, um, you know, we got connected through Facebook. You're an avid CrossFitter. I am. So kind of how has that program of management evolved over time for you? I used to smoke like a chimney. And, and I figured out one day that I didn't want to smoke anymore. So I started running instead. People shift their addictions all the time. And I think that if you can shift it in a positive way, that's the best way to do things, obviously. Um, I have many vices, so I've just replaced them all with exercise methodologies. That that's pretty much worked well for everything I've done, you know, and then everything that comes with that diet, like all of the different things, community that come out of that. So I think um, that that's been the, my biggest my biggest win is shifting it in that way. But it didn't really pick up to a point where I could be stable with it until I started back on medication. So then it became like regimented, and this is what we're going to do to manage it. So, so you tried Ritalin, Dexedrine. What what have you tried in oh, the interim? What are you using right now? I've tried them all. I'm, right now I'm on Daytrona. So I've been on the Daytrona patch for the last seven years. It's pretty epic. 
aside from the skin irritation, but I've been, you know, I mean, when we first started, when I was a kid, my parents tried to take me to like this guy who used to try to adjust my skull. It was like the weirdest. <laughs> it was crazy. Like he would put his fingers in my mouth and like push on the roof of my mouth. I'm like, what is going on? What? Yeah, it was crazy. I don't know if it was just like, I don't know if they fell for some some gimmick or whatever, but it was nuts. So like, yeah, almost every every drug I think that they make for it, I've probably taken and, you know. What have been some of the tougher side effects of those drugs for you? Ritalin was terrible because probably the time of my life it was. So I was my growth was stunted bad. Like I was a very small kid forever, and my family is not small people. So and then when I stopped taking it, like I pretty much just blew up. Like I have stretch marks. Like I just grew. Like I think of it like the Hulk. <laughs> like I was just like, what happened to that guy? And drinking all the time didn't help either. So that didn't with the green skin as well. No, I didn't have green, but you know, might have been a little yellow by that point. <laughs> That was the biggest one for me, and the zombie-like effects of that drug were pretty pretty gnarly. I think it was just probably because I was a kid, though. Definitely remember there was I was probably over medicated. There was times where I was like pulling my eyelashes out, like crazy things, like that just weren't normal, right? Later, there was like I think I took Concerta once. There were sexual side effects. Did not enjoy that. I think the patch, the um, Daytona patch, is pretty good. Yeah. yeah, it's been the best. Do you have any side effects? You said skin irritation. Just, or anything else? That's it. Yeah. Well, in fact, if you don't take it off, you're not going to get any sleep. So I mean, but it just it's consistent and it's solid. It's not you don't have a bunch of peaks and valleys. So you've mentioned a couple of times hyper focus. You use the word addiction. You obviously drank a lot of alcohol. Mm. It sounds like talk about that side of your your journey. It's a side I have to constantly keep at bay. So it's like a yeah, I'm a highly addictive person. I would say like I never got into really hard drugs like. Probably cocaine is the worst thing I've ever done, and it's probably like twice in my life. Like marijuana, no problem. We smoked that all day long, and now it doesn't make anything worse. But I don't, I don't do that anymore. But I do find when I get like working at Microsoft was dangerous back in the day because we work hard and we play hard. And there was a lot of times at work where I would, I would get more inebriated than I would ever get at home, and I would tell my friends like. I get more messed up at work than at home. They're like, they're like seriously? I'm like, like at work in the office? At, at work? work, like game on. Like we would go lunches. Like it was just getting out of hand up there. And I realized like, you can't keep this up. There's no way. I mean, A, you're probably gonna lose your job because this team won't function. And B, you know, I'm staying up there until late at night, you know, my family. <laughs> so it wasn't gonna work out. So I always have like this rolling wave of, you know, when I get to three beers, I'm like, I'm just either going to keep on going or I'm just going to have to stop. So there's been stents in my life where I've quit drinking for a year, try to get back into it. And then I realize that it builds again and then it's pull the e-brake. So it's just been focusing more on um, things that I know will keep me busy and things that I know that do that in a, in a way that I can help evolve other humans. That's pretty much how I roll now. So how much CrossFit are you doing? I CrossFit six times, five times a week consistently. I've been doing that for seven years and then, um, yeah, that bleeds over in all kinds of different running and all kinds of stuff. Okay, cool. So you do other exercise Absolutely. around that as well. What else do you do? Yep. Um, I run all the time. We do Spartan races, pretty much anything that is a um, community building exercise thing. So Ragnar relays, all kinds of different stuff. How do you say community a couple of times? Talk about more about community and what how that helps you. Yeah, so the CrossFit community was definitely something that... Um, I think the easiest way to, to portray it is I had alienated my family based on, you know, my crazy years as a kid and it's still pretty damaged, but whatever. So um, my wife had been going to Zumba is really where it started. And then she found a CrossFit gym in the back room of the Zumba studio. And for years, like I watched her, you know, from a bar stool <laughs> getting fitter and I'm like, God, what's going on over there? 
So one day she was like, you should come with me. And I was, you know, a year later, a year passed and I'm like, no. And then we got in this huge fight one drunken night. I came home and I was like, fine, I'll just go with you the next day. And so what I found there was, and I get kind of emotional about it, but the people there were just willing to selflessly give to somebody they, (laughs) sorry, it's okay. To somebody they don't know, just based on who they knew. So it profoundly moved me in a way that pretty much changed everything I did. So that's how that worked. That's yeah. amazing. Yeah. Have you been able to find community in other areas of your life? Or is that like, that's your... That was the apex of that. Um, now I seek it everywhere. So anywhere I can go play a role to fill... Like, I, I always think now that I have to pay that back. So I like... I mean, I can speak chapters about the things that CrossFit has done for me in that way alone and just those people in my community. So I do that work as a as repayment. So now I teach kids CrossFit in school and like all of these different things that I do basically are are built up around that and those people. So I think it's so true for all humans. Like we we're a we're a tribe species. Absolutely. Right. And you know, I I I find myself saying this all the time, but we're so disconnected, I think. Completely now, yeah. um, even though you know logically we're more connected than we've ever been, mm-hmm. but the reality is not that. No. And those communities were not in meaningful ways. That's the problem. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I found that you know I, I for a while uh, went to AA meetings because you know I also tr- was drinking far too much at some point as I was trying to figure out what was going on with me, and I found the same way. Like it was the first time I'd been somewhere where like people seemed to genuinely care and be like happy and glad that I was there. Um, and that really that moved me a lot in the same way. You've done a lot of different work. How has ADHD helped and hindered those jobs on the way? Uh, like we just said, like it has to be very, I have to be interested in it, right? So um, obviously the, the hindrance would be if I'm not, <laughs> I'm not going to keep showing up. So How interested were you in garbage? Uh, not, definitely no. not in Minnesota because okay. it was the middle of the winter and that, not favorable. Um, but I mean, I, I could actually see, like, you know, like seeing what's in the garbage. Like, that sounds quite yeah, interesting I mean, for a while. I, I dig through a curb full of garbage for days, <laughs> but loading it in the back of a truck. It was cool. I mean, it wasn't that bad. It, it kept me busy physically. So it was a physically demanding job. I will say that. And then the elements on top was equally as interesting. Um, but we moved there. Jocelyn's family. So Jocelyn, my wife, she's from there. And her family was like, hey, you guys need to change your pace. You just come on over to <laughs> live in our basement. I was like, what? So. Why not? You know, that's how it was. Just, yeah, sure. Let's just leave where I've lived forever and just go to Minnesota for no apparent reason. So we drove there in a blizzard. It was wild, but yeah. So in that way, um, it's always kind of kept me, kept me fluid, kept me moving into new things. The hindrance, like I said, is, is always the problem with, um, so time, time is a big deal for me, like not getting to work on time. I remember that was a problem when I was a kid even through the middle of my life, like, ah, I just don't feel like going today, you know, it's things like that, that I didn't really think as a big deal. I remember, um, like the consequences are, you know, affecting consequence that was called. I've always struggled with that. Like, I don't realize if I don't go to work, I'm probably going to get fired. You know, it's just, it never occurred to me. I remember one time in third grade, as a matter of fact, it's interesting. I was just thinking about this yesterday. There was a paper we were doing, you know, you leave the refrigerator open, what's going to happen. And I could not put the two together. Like, here's a refrigerator open and here's like a puddle of, you know, melted ice. And I was like, what? And teacher's like, you really, you don't see that? And I was like, I don't understand that concept. I mean, now obviously I get it, but there's a lot of things still in my mind. I'm like, I don't know why we have to do things in a, in a conf- in conformity a lot of times. And I think that has been a superpower. Like 
I'm always pushing the boundary or sometimes I don't even see it. So I'll just habitually overstep and people are like, wow, like you didn't even see that line. You said chaos right at the start. And I, I'm hearing something different than, than chaos. In a chaotic environment, like there are no boundaries, right? And you just described the benefit of not seeing and operating within boundaries. But yeah, you're right. It's not chaos to me. Yeah, but exactly. it's chaotic to other people. That's, right. That's what it is, really. Interesting. Yep. So interesting then the way that you introduced yourself was through the lens of other people. Yeah, I do that often, actually. Yeah. How people see you, not yep. like who you are. Yeah, I struggle with that a lot. So let's do that introduction again. I don't know if I could. Because <laughs> <laughs> now, now I'm biased. I'm like, oh, I got to think about it. Well, but yeah, let's, I mean, consciously, let's try and make that a Todd introducing himself for the, the power and the strength that he has and not through the negative lens of other people. Yeah, that's uh, that's a stretch. You have a very hard time. Like, um, even my wife says, like, why, why don't you ever take credit for the things that you do that are awesome? I'm just, I don't see it as awesome. So it's really hard for me to tangibly pull those kind of things out. Can I have a go? Sure. So I would say, hi, I'm Todd, uh, blessed with the ability to focus on things that I think are really important, the ability to push boundaries where other people get confined. And uh, that comes from having ADHD. Can I use that? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> it's yours. Great. Go up to LinkedIn, whatever you want. <laughs> that was magic. <laughs> yeah. Because that, again, that's that topic of the way that society sees people who have a mental illness, the labels that we end up putting on ourselves, and this ongoing sense that you know, we don't, in inverted commas, fit into society. Yeah. I mean, you could say, like, society doesn't fit us. Definitely, that's how I feel about it, yeah. I've been thinking about this question a lot lately. I watched a documentary by a British comedian called Stephen Fry, who has bipolar, like me. And he goes and talks to a lot of people with bipolar, you know, some celebrities, you know, some non-celebrities. And he asks them all the same question at the end, which is, if you could go back in time and you could live your life again without bipolar, would you do it? And it's a really interesting question because everybody, I think, except one woman stopped and had to really think about it. There's one woman who's like, no, my life is just a mess. Like I'd get rid of it in a, in a heartbeat. But everybody else reflected on, well. Is the question, would you live it again without bipolar yeah. or would you live it again? Would you live it again without bipolar? Okay. Yeah. And so everyone stops and they think about, well, you know, think of all the things that it has enabled, right? These creative spurts, again, the ability to kind of push boundaries to get a bunch of stuff done. And most of them conclude either I'm not sure or no, I'd, I'd do it all again with, with bipolar. So I'm wondering if I ask you the same question. If you could go back to the start, turn off ADHD and live your life again, would you do it? No, definitely not. Right? Yeah. So it's fascinating. Like, it's, we're seeing this as a gift. Yeah. Even though when I look at it objectively, I see it through a different lens. It yeah. definitely is yeah. a gift. Yeah. I would say. You know, it makes life harder mm -hmm. sometimes, but I mean, shoot, life is hard for everybody in different ways. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. I met a guy last night and he said, uh, if his life wasn't hard, what's the point of living it? I thought that's pretty cool. Like for real, like if you don't do hard things, what's, what do you get out of doing things? You know what I mean? Yeah. Very little. Uh, when I think about that question, 
I think about some like of my friends from from school who live very steady, fulfilling lives, and I know there are times that I've been jealous of that, and I've looked at it like God, I wish you know, like I could just go through life without the chaos and the and the ups and downs. But then I look at like what does what does that lead to? It leads to me doing this podcast, which you know is great. Like I get a lot of you know a lot of energy about it. Like I. You know, I left the UK to come work for Microsoft in the States. And I don't know I could have done that unless I had that desire to say, like, fuck it, I'm just going to go do it. It's so hard to see it as a gift, but it really can be. I agree with all that completely. And I think one of the, one of the interesting things that you can see through looking through that lens is the normalcy that you don't want to be that you observe other people living. Like, like I don't want to just nine to five every day, you know, and get home and sit on the couch. I, it's not for me, you know? <laughs> it's like, and then when you see other people doing that, you're like, I do anyways. Personally, I'm like, what can we do here now? Because I'm bored. Like, <laughs> you should get up off the couch. We go do something. They're like, this is just how I live. I'm like, why? <laughs> <laughs> so it's very crazy. From an early age, Todd tried a lot of things to fit in with his ADD. He walked the standard path by trying a few different medications. He tried the alternative path of skull adjustments. And he's tried the illicit path of drugs and alcohol before finally finding comfort in the combination of CrossFit community and medication. This is his journey of trying to belong. But there's a parallel journey he's taken of acceptance, coming to terms with who he is and the ADD that's part of his identity, accepting that his approach to life is a little chaotic, and that his life wouldn't have been as rich without his ADD. For Todd, his journey to Microsoft and his ADD have combined in a magical way where he's able to be a resource for others. So with the, the uh, Microsoft having worked there, I know it's a culture where people who can hyper-focus and kind of be creative and push boundaries are, are valued. What's been your experience? The culture there's changed and it's changing substantially every day. My regular job, I'm pretty proficient at that. And I, and I leverage that to do other things that I find meaningful in that way. So, um, at some point there will be an impasse where I will split that off and go a different way. But you mentioned doing your job well. And then there are some other things that you're doing. What are the other things you're exploring? So there's a huge mindfulness movement up there. Um, pretty much everything coming out of global L and D is pretty awesome right now. There's, um, they just do things that are not the way that they used to do it. Like I've cried at work multiple times in workshops that have meaning, deep, deep meaning. Seeing that and realizing, stepping back and being like, we're at work right now. <laughs> this is actually happening. Like those kind of things, like just drive me to make sure that everybody can feel that. So that's, that's what I'm, I'm hell bent on doing that at work. That's great. Yeah. That's great. Um, it's very rewarding. It, it feels like they've created some sense of, kind of emotional safety, yep. ability to be authentic. Absolutely. Yeah, that was not there when I was definitely. <laughs> I left in 2010. That was not a time no, that you, you would, would get try you would get trampled <laughs> if you did that. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So and then through that it's just it's it's creating groups and and it's being an example 
of empowerment to other people. Like we can stand up in a meeting and we can ask somebody like, why are you talking like that? Like, we couldn't do that before. Like, yeah. <laughs> you yeah. just cower. Like, like, why, why are you being a jerk? Yeah, right? exactly. Yeah. Why don't you let this person talk? You know, like we all have something to contribute. Obviously we're all working in the same place just because you have a bad attitude doesn't mean everybody should have to suffer. So you, I think you said you were there for, you've been there 17 years. Yes. Yeah. So you were there through, I think the tail end of Bill Gates leadership. Yep. Steve Ballmer, Steve Maria, now Satya. Yep. How things changed, do you think, through that time? Exponentially. It just it just went from a culture of, it's almost oppression is really kind of dictatorship. Like that shit doesn't work in a place like that. I seeing him come in and then I really hadn't paid any much attention. And, and then Satya's book came out and I, and I started, I was like, nah, whatever, it's moneymaker, you know. But then I started reading it and delving into like his personal life. And it's legit. Like the way that he portrays himself in a corporate sense is actually what he wants, what has worked for him and what he wants to evolve as like his legacy right so and it's working so i think you know and i believe i'm right in saying he has a at least one neurodiverse kid right? yeah right yep. um so it's really interesting because he has had to accept that there are people whose brains operate in a different way and i guess that's informed how he thinks about the culture of the the company uh, yeah definitely right. influenced it for sure yeah because when you're in a position of leadership you know like it or not what you do think say how you act influences how everybody else does yeah yeah uh, and when you get pat when you transgress like what they think about that that's i think that's really where the magic starts to happen earlier in your microsoft career uh, did you have any issues with adhd and managers or your performance or anything like that um Recently, probably a year ago, maybe a year and a half ago, I got um, we got reorged and I went to the dev discipline, like hardcore development, where I didn't fit and it was riddled with ambiguity and I just tanked. Like there was no way. Like, it was terrible. Like you guys need to fill in these work items because I don't even know what I'm supposed to be doing. We should figure that out. That wasn't going to happen, right? Was that ambiguity born out of just the nature of the work? Just the nature. There's the culture of the team, I yeah. think, is kind of how it went. But I saw that, that there is definitely dangers lurking and if you're not um if you're not looking for them they could blindside you and you know you there's a certain amount of complacency when you've been there for so long you're like oh you know i just do my job and everything's fine but that's not always the case so organization is a, is a huge one for me and and trying to find tools i kind of look at it as trying to find tools to do the things my wife does that's kind of how i look at it like <laughs> all that cool things that she knows how to do like i could do them but i never really learned how to do it so it's like you know how to keep notes in meetings effectively you know like what tools work for me in that so is the struggle with ambiguity something that is a byproduct of ADHD for you? I think it's a byproduct of of the the educational pieces I missed. Does that make sense? Like, yeah. so it was like I like have these gaps of you know I don't understand how that works. You know, I'm like I don't know, and and, it, and I find it ridiculously hard to go find ways to learn that those things. Like, where are you going to go to learn an organization in a way that you need it to be right? So finding tools like that at work has been. Um, so we grow these communities around our diversity there. And the, those growing those communities has been the biggest thing for me, I think, because people were like, oh, this works for me. I'll get this thing. So sharing. So that's a community of people with ADHD or? Absolutely. So they have um, employee resource groups there, which are kind of overloaded in the way that it's, um, personally, the way I look at it is, is disability is way too big of a blanket to house everything that could possibly fill under that. So um, with the evolution of teams, I don't know if you use teams or not. So it's kind of, it's like this community-driven software that they have now. With that, you can get more granular. So I can find people who are ADHD and I can create a group from, you know, from who was in the ERG, an email, 
and suddenly those people become way more vibrant because they feel like they have a place that they can share like their experience instead of just I'm throwing it out to some email and nobody's ever going to reply. So being interactive in that way has over the last year has definitely like helped all of those things. And that's a group that you've created. I created one. There's um, two or three. There's one a bigger one around neurodiversity that encompasses like autism and a whole bunch of different um, things like that. But ADHD is in there. And then I created one um, just about attention deficit to share my experience. And it's just become, it's, it really blows my mind, actually. What I, what I realized was you can't just tell people how the culture should be one day I was sitting in my office, I was like, you're just going to have to do it. And it's funny that I saw that, that sticker on your laptop. Like, it doesn't matter what you say. Like, you have to live that, right? So that's just a, p- a piece of that. Like, the, the, my interaction with teams is I'm just living it. And people are like, oh, how did you come out to your boss? I'm just living it. Like, you know, come watch if you want. I don't really care. But this is the way I do it. And hopefully it, it will spur something in you to do something similar or, you know, or learn something new or however that works. So, so have you just explicitly told your boss I have ADD? I told my last boss, the dev boss, like I was having trouble and I was like, here's the deal. And there's a lot of resources at work that people don't know about. It's another thing that, I, that I'm crusading for. Like we have great benefits and we have great HR, you know, and, and they don't necessarily work together in a way that helps a lot of people find the things that they need. So, um, as an example, I met a girl in that group and she was like, Oh yeah, I got this job coach because I got this accommodation through benefits. And I'm like, what is that? Like, I would have never known. And so people come to me, they're like, what is that? And I'm like, let me hook you up. So it's just like facilitating those things to make it better while working backwards to try to make sure that, you know, everybody at the, at the company can find those resources. Like that's my current goal. Like I'm just, I'm hell bent on that right now. What other what other resources are there? Job coach, um, ERGs. Yeah, I mean, you have all that stuff. They have um, workshops all the time around that kind of stuff. Community, like you know, people will just meet up on campus. You know, even now it's virtual. Like, it's just I really find it the most beneficial when people reach out and they're like, I don't know what to do. Like, I got this shitty boss, doesn't care. I can't tell him because everybody's just going to flame me. And I'm I'm just like, how can I help? And and here's my experience, and how can I help you? Like, support that, right? So it goes to show even in an organization where people are encouraged to be themselves, coming from the yeah. leadership, you still get a shitty boss. It's not. Yeah. It's just checkbox, really. Yeah. So it's what we call the frozen center right now. It's like you know, from the top, you got you know leadership telling you this is how things are going to change. People like me in the trenches were like, yeah, we're making this happen. But you got this center where oh, I talked about diversity, you know, and it's just it's so... Uh, it's just like it's a trend to them, you know, and they just don't get it. But then when they see it happen, like I'm going to be in your face, and that's why I was I was kind of telling you about like I don't care about going to talk to VPs. Like, actually, they want you to come talk to them. It's very strange to see, and people are like you can't talk to that guy. Like, check this out. <laughs> yeah. I was just over here, you know, and, they, and I bring them plants, and they're like, "What is this guy?" And it's like, "Yeah, I just want to talk to you about culture and your team," you know. And they're just they're very welcoming and they're very humbling. It's that boundary again. Don't have it. Don't yeah. eat it. Yeah. Don't care. Don't. We're all breathing the same air. Who cares? Yeah. Right? That's awesome. Yeah. That really is. What would you recommend uh, another company do? Maybe a small company doesn't have the same financial resources. What do you think could be helpful for people with ADD? Just talk and just listen to to the – allow a safe place for people to tell their story and operate within the context of how they've lived their life, right? Like, If you can enable that at work, people will just magically do what you want them to do. All right, I've been waiting to ask this question. <laughs> you arrived here today with a plan. 
So talk about why you arrived with a plant. And so the plant thing is funny. This plant. <laughs> so five years ago at work, I met a guy who bicycled across the United States. And I thought, man, that's pretty epic. He's going to take a summer vacation. He's going to go bicycle across the United States. And in the atrium by his office, he had probably 200 plants. And I always thought, why would a guy need 200 plants? So I went up there one day and I was like, what's going on with all these plants? And he's like, oh, I'm so glad you asked because I'm not going to work here very long and I need somebody to take care of them. <laughs> and I thought, I mean, all you got to do is water. Like how, like there was lemon tree, like there was all kinds of crazy shit, plants I'd never seen. And so I was like, all right. And then I didn't know when it was going to happen. One day he emailed me, he's like, today's my last day. So whatever, if you want to let the plants die, that's fine. It's up to you. So I figure, you know, who can let something die? That's kind of the way I look at it. So I took all these plants into my office, which became a jungle, and people started look, you know, coming by, <laughs> like, what's going on in your office? So I started giving them away. So I started taking a trimming, and I'd be like, hey, you should take a little bit of plant with you. <laughs> so now everywhere I go, I talk about culture, and I talk about all the things that, I've, that I find joy in. I bring a piece of one of those plants with That's me, amazing. and I just spread them all over the place. <laughs> so what, what plant is this? I don't even know what it's called. It's just, <laughs> it's just a plant. It was growing in my house because I brought it home, and it wasn't getting enough sunlight. And so I was like, oh, I'll take him. Take James a little bit of that. Oh, plant. thank you. So I really appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, water it once a week. So that's the plan. That's amazing. Yep. Don't kill it. What else do we need to talk about as it relates particularly to ADHD at work? We just need to reinforce the fact that people should be um, allowed to work within the context of, of their humanity. I mean, I, I just think that that's, that's it. I, I find that a lot of people at work are afraid to, to be themselves. And probably for a good reason in a corporate setting like that. But I think that once, if you have, management and support around you that realizes that that's you know a huge step in vulnerability and that they can probably be a better person by by recognizing and helping facilitate how they can you know allow you to do good work i think that that's what we should be pointing towards all the time i think there's so much power in authenticity if you just think about like the the stories people respond to on you know facebook or whatever the tv specials that that we like it always seems to me that those stories where someone chooses to be themselves and just fully inhabit their lives are the ones that have the most power yeah, for us. for sure. But it's hard to do. It is. I, it I don't get, really know why, but... It is, but I think it's, it's because, you know, it's because of the shame factor. Like, a lot of people just don't feel like they can be themselves. And, and I think, but like you said, that's the razor's edge. Like, that's where the glory is. <laughs> like, when you do it, you'll know the people you can, you can really trust because they're going to be like, yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. If you could go back in time... Um, pick a point on your journey and give yourself a message, tell yourself something, where would you go and what would you say? Man, I don't know. That's, uh, I'd probably go back to school at some point right before I fell off. Everyone would have said, you know, you should think twice about this. Like, I feel like I lost, I lost quite a bit by not knowing. I don't know. I don't know about loss. I don't think loss is a really good word, but I, I could have definitely benefited more by having some of the tools I could have got there if I would have paid attention. Or maybe... You know, this was exactly where you were meant to be. That's well, That's why I said I don't know. What I lost. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I wouldn't have got here if I didn't do that. So yeah. it's like hard to say. Yeah, it's that same question again. Would you do it all again, like without it? And you said no. I I'm pretty sure I'd say no at this point. So so Todd, as we're coming to wrap up here, anything else that you want to say? Message you want to deliver? I just want to make sure that everybody realizes that they can have a have a participating role in their own life, and there's people around you that will support you to do that. That's awesome. Yeah. Todd, I really appreciate you making the time to, to be here. Yeah, thank you. Appreciate it.
We're making a lot of progress in the acceptance of mental illness in society, but there's still a long way to go. I get to talk to a lot of people about their mental illness, but when I do, those are typically conversations that happen in a conference room with a door closed or whispered on the floor of an event or a meetup. We're still a long way from normalizing mental illness and gaining broad acceptance. It's important that people like me and others who are advocating in the community keep doing that. But in practice, we don't have the reach or resources to make a big difference. My impact is person to person, not society wide. I find it encouraging to hear that the CEO of a company with massive reach like Microsoft is doing so much to create the emotional safety that lets people come forward and talk about their mental illness. I don't think it's any accident that Microsoft's CEO, Satya Nadella, has dealt with some neurodiversity in his own family. I want to thank Todd for this episode. When you meet him, it's hard not to get caught up in his infectious energy. Even editing this episode, I got caught up in that energy and Todd brought a lot of smiles to my face. It's important to remember that at a company like Microsoft, the CEO can do a lot to influence the culture toward emotional safety. But it's people like Todd who are on the ground making it real for the people that brings that culture to life. Microsoft are lucky to have him. So maybe if we have people like Satya who start at the top, people like Todd and me who are starting at the bottom, we can start to thaw what Todd described as the frozen center, where perhaps it is that the prejudice still lies, both in business and in society. If you like what you've heard in today's episode, please leave us a rating and a review on iTunes or wherever it is you get your podcasts. If you'd like to hear about new episodes as they're released, you can sign up for our newsletter at silentsuperheroes.com or you can visit facebook.com forward slash silent superheroes. Take your mental health seriously. If you need to speak to someone, you can call 1-800-273-8255 or text crisistextline.org at 741-741. Both provide 24-7 confidential counseling people in the United States. Worldwide, visit iasp.info slash resources slash crisis underscore centers slash. To help others find the Silent Superheroes podcast, please leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcasting service.